Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, elite U.S. media would have you know they celebrate and appreciate frontline workers. But what happens when those workers try and speak for themselves, try to get past the hero label and demand conditions that don't require them to choose heroically between going to work and staying safe and healthy? What would it look like to call corporate media's bluff on their sudden serious respect for working people who didn't start being important because there's a contagious disease going around? We'll talk about action for workers' rights and why you might not be hearing about it with Mike Elk, senior labor reporter and founder of Payday Report. Also on the show, there's a lot going on, and it's hard to stay focused on all of it. But the U.S. has an inward and an outward face, and even as we are now justifiably focused on what's going on within our borders, we're still accountable for what's being done in our name outside of them. And that includes, among other things, devastating economic sanctions on Venezuela and Iran, ensuring that those countries, because they are designated official enemies, will have a harder time protecting their citizens from the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll talk about that with writer Joe Emmersberger. That's all coming up, but first, a super quick look back at some recent press. 21-year-old Kentucky college student Ashley Lawrence is making face masks, as are a lot of people. But hers have a clear plastic window in them because many deaf and hard-of-hearing people need to see lips in order to communicate. A lot of people are just not being thought of. Lawrence told Lexington NBC affiliate Lex18, and truer words were never spoken. She isn't charging for the masks because she says, I think if you need them, then you need them. Just a reminder, as you read news media, to consider who is not being thought of, ask why not, and think of them. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. U.S. news media right now are all about saluting or celebrating frontline workers, the heroes of the coronavirus pandemic. That's great, but how deep does it go? Does it translate to ongoing awareness or substantive support for workers' right to health and safety, even when no pandemic is raging? And when workers act for themselves in an organized way, as thousands are doing right now across the country, well, then they stop being people and become labor and evidently move to a different, less friendly place in the elite media mind. There is no real labor beat, as there once was in corporate media, and few journalists who see workers as their story or see stories through workers' eyes day in and day out. We're joined now by one who does. Mike Elk is senior labor reporter and founder of Payday Report, online at paydayreport.com. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Mike Elk. It's great as always to be on your show, Janine. Well, 
straight information, first of all, because I don't actually know that folks who aren't actively seeking it out are going to be hearing it. So can you just give listeners an idea of what worker actions are happening right now around the country? And to what extent do they fit with the maybe textbook understanding of organized labor? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing the largest strike wave that we've seen in any period. On my website, paydayreport.com, we've created a strike tracker. And in the last month, there have been over 50 Wildcat strikes. Last year was a record year for strikes. There were the most strikes in 15 years, and there weren't 50 strikes. So to see this many strikes in less than a month says that something fundamentally is changing in the country. And that's a big, big deal, especially with everything that's happening around the debate about how do we rebuild society in the wake of the COVID pandemic. So when you say wildcat strikes, just for folks who don't know, how does that differ? What kind of situation does that put workers in? What does that mean? Well, a wildcat strike means that workers are walking off the job illegally. Uh, Under labor law, you can only walk off the job when your contract has expired. In a wildcat strike, though, Workers simply say no, and they take a big risk. Unions can be sued. In some places, union leaders in the public sector can even be thrown in jail. So workers are literally risking their jobs with no legal protections to do this. But not many people are getting fired right now. And a big reason for that is that frontline essential workers are seen as heroes. And that type of energy is really going to change the conversation. Nobody really thought of grocery store workers as heroes before this. Now every chain is giving grocery store workers a $2 an hour raise. And after this is over, if grocery workers start going on strike, people are going to remember that. And workers are going to remember the power and the strikes of this moment. So while this is a really horrific, terrible moment full of death, it's an exciting moment where workers are taking power back. Absolutely. Well, I just need to ask you, what's your sense of what corporate media, elite media are missing or getting wrong when they talk about these heroic workers, when these workers take power into their own hands? Well, often they're not recognizing the organization involved in a lot of these efforts. In some places, you know, it'll happen that 20 or 30 workers call out sick or workers simply walk off the job. But they're not recognizing how much organizing goes into that. And some of that could be caused by the fact that reporters are doing a lot of this over the phone and not actually going out and sitting down with folks. And also that, you know, a lot of reporters are slammed. But the bigger issue is that all of a sudden, every reporter in this country is a labor reporter. Mm -hmm. Right. All of a sudden. And most people don't have a lot of experience covering that. Uh, And it's showing in some of the reporting. Yeah, I I actually wanted to ask you about that because reporters need sources, of course. They need people to go on the record. And one thing that I hope is coming through in a lasting way is how difficult it is for workers, even status, high-status workers like doctors or Navy captains, you know, how hard it is made for them to speak out and to talk about the conditions that they deal with. That's a factor for journalists. And yet you manage to get around it. You know, you manage to get a story without, I think, asking someone to endanger themselves. So it really is about, I guess, putting in that work beforehand, right? 
it's an issue of trust. You know, people say, how does a small outlet like Payday Report get people to talk? You know, I've been covering the labor movement for 12 years now. My father's a labor leader. I was a shop steward as well. And people know my reputation. So workers know they can trust me. But that trust isn't always so easy to build. A lot of times, you know, one of my girlfriends joked that being a labor reporter was like being in the mob because I was always calling up people asking them to vouch for me. (laughs) And this is true. And it's a big issue that most workers are really scared to talk to the press, especially right now when people are scared about how they're going to keep their jobs. Well, and folks will have heard about, for example, the Amazon worker who tried to speak up and they leaked their PR document in which they laid out exactly how they were going to smear him and to make him the face of the labor and union movement and talk about how he wasn't very articulate, which, you know, he's an African-American man. So the power differential between what the owners can bring to bear against workers they got a much easier slide in the media than the workers themselves do. And journalists have to work to shift that balance. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I mean, you know, I was fired in a high profile union drive uh, at Politico. And, you know, some companies aren't afraid of doing that. You know, people that head some of these big companies, all they care about is money. And if firing someone's going to save them money, they might do it. But what we're seeing is, A lot of these products are consumer brands, Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods. Right. And people are going to remember this. And I think alternatives might start emerging to some of this as a result. I mean, Amazon has been particularly dirty. And I think we have to put those alternatives in front of folks. I think there can be a sense that it's enough to just feel bad about it. Um, And that's not enough. Well, I want to give you an opportunity to just call out, tell folks what summer things. I know that there's folks in Pittsburgh. I know that there's meat packers in Chicago. I know there's folks all around the country doing that risky thing of, of walking out. What are just some of the stories that you think folks should find out about? Well, I was just reading about a nursing home strike in Riverside, California, and there was a nursing home strike in Pittsburgh the other day. And nursing home workers are some of the most abused workers in the country. Really low pay, very dangerous situations often. And now a lot of nursing home workers are going on strike because they don't have working conditions. The other thing that's big is meatpacking workers. You know, meat packers work shoulder to shoulder and they all touch the same pieces of meat all day long. And it's easy in that environment for disease to spread. I mean, we just see uh, Albany, Georgia, a city of 70,000 has the fourth fastest community spread of any city in the country. And that's a city that meatpacking is the biggest employer in town. Two meatpackers that have died, they think, you know, it's linked to that. If you look at Sioux Falls, South Dakota, there have been 300 positive tests for COVID in that town. 80 of them are workers at the meatpacking plant. So we're really seeing the meatpackers and nursing assistants are really the folks that are the most exposed and are the biggest sites of mass outbreaks. You know, we're looking at nursing homes that 100 people in a nursing home get COVID. It's bad. And we hope, of course, that it will continue to mean something for journalists, even when we're not talking about a contagious disease. You know, the fact that the that their conditions are difficult, are precarious, 
it it that means they're always that way, you know. And we have to kind of we have to keep that alive, even when hopefully we come out the other side of this. Totally, I think this is starting to change the conversation, and it's going to be interesting when this ends to see where it goes. We've been speaking with Mike Elk. He's senior labor reporter and founder of Payday Report online at paydayreport.com. Mike Elk, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Sounds good. A lot is going on under the cover of the coronavirus, precisely what Naomi Klein is talking about with the frame's shock doctrine and disaster capitalism. Besides gutting environmental regulations and throwing money at overserved corporations, we see the Trump administration attempting to use the pandemic to justify existing economic sanctions on Venezuela and on Iran immiserating civilians of other sovereign countries to openly pressure them to choose a government more to the U.S.'s liking is not new, sadly. Doing it in the face of a pandemic is just further evidence, were it needed, that the cruelty is the point. Canada-based writer Joe Emmersberger has been working on this. He's written about it for FAIR.org. He joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Joe Emmersberger. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, let's start with Venezuela, I guess, where readers will be now hearing that Maduro is a drug dealer or they're a narco mm-hmm. state. What What's happening in Venezuela now with regard to U.S. actions and why now? Yeah, it seems like the United States was coming under pressure, you know, with, with the coronavirus and all the fallout all over the world, it's a you know, pandemic. It seems like they were coming under pressure. They are coming under some pressure to at least ease, to not temporarily lift the sanctions they've imposed on so many countries, including Venezuela. You know, I wrote a piece mentioning that the IMF rejected an emergency request by Venezuela for loans, for $5 billion loans, a special emergency type loan they've made available to countries for help them through the coronavirus crisis. So Maduro's government in Venezuela immediately applied and got rejected very quickly by the IMF, which is typically run by the uh, United States government's treasury departments. I mean, they have the veto for loans to uh, middle-income countries. So it seemed like shortly after that, the uh, United States reacted to the pressure to ease the sanctions, which was to double down, just basically go on the attack and put out indictments on Maduro and several other uh, former and current officials of the Venezuelan government, of Maduro's government, saying that they're involved with drug trafficking. In uh, Maduro's case itself, it said that he had a strategy of trying to flood the United States with drugs to weaken the United States, which is uh, just ludicrous. But when you demonize a country, typically in the United States, what they do is they portray the country as uh, whatever uh, leader they're after. is not just evil, but also totally irrational, so that you can believe anything about them. You know, like uh, you know, Saddam Hussein, obviously, in that case, he was a, a brutal dictator, but he wasn't irrational. He, did, he wasn't hiding weapons of mass destruction. But they, you know, they managed to convince people that all well, these guys are against us, so therefore they're not really rational, so you can believe any allegations. In fact, what's funny, though, is that actually Venezuela would have much more uh, reason to issue indictments and 
charge U.S. officials because one of the people they singled out in these indictments is a general who was living in Colombia, and he just recently came out publicly saying that he was working with Guaido and U.S. advisors to try to organize some kind of armed uprising, you know, which would probably include even the assassination of Maduro. So based on that alone, Venezuela could be uh, prosecuting U.S. officials and trying to extradite them to Venezuela for that. But you know, obviously that just doesn't happen because it's all a matter of who has more firepower, not has who, who has an actual legal case, you know, that has very little to do with <laughs> with yeah. these kind of situations. <laughs> when you get to the drug traffic allegations too, of course, and this is just based on the DEA's own statistics, the overwhelming majority of drugs is, of course, produced in Colombia and consumed in the United States. And even the, if you look at even the path that it takes to get to the United States, according to the DEA, there's images that Venezuela analysis and other people have published online. It shows that the, most of the transit is even through governments that are typically aligned with the United States. So it's just another way to show how outlandish, how politically motivated the allegations against Venezuela are, because if this was a legitimate drug trafficking concern, of course, I mean, there'd be all sorts of Colombian officials and even, even U.S. entities, uh, maybe officials or other entities that allow the money to get laundered and everything in the United States. The Trump administration has been so transparent in their desire for regime change, if I can say it softly, Mm -hmm. in Venezuela, that it just seems like, oh, wow, now you're bringing out a drug charge? You know, it just, their their Mm -hmm. goal is so transparent that one wonders why you would take any particular, you know, iteration especially seriously, and yet we have media engaging it you know i, I guess i sure. could also ask you just uh, there's there sanctions have an impact they have an impact on human beings right i mean we can't sure. forget that of course not you know it, even if everything they said about venezuela's government was true and it's not i mean venezuela is a, is a, has a democratically elected government i mean that has to be said because even from well-intentioned people sometimes you don't get pushback on that particular point because it's just been so internalized repeated so often that people just maybe give up or maybe think they have other things to say, but that's that's huge. I mean, Venezuela's government is democratically elected. That's what makes it so especially horrifying. It is as much right to call itself democratic elect as any, any country, in the United States, Canada, or anybody else. But it's still being openly targeted. You know, usually the United States has a, a kernel of truth. Any propaganda, there's some kind of truth at the heart of it, even if it's embroidered with lies. Like, for instance, you know, with Iraq, I mean, Saddam Hussein really was a horrible dictator. That was a truth, but of course that didn't mean that everything else they said was true. And also in the case of Saddam Hussein, you know, the sanctions, you know, you had UN officials resigning, top-level UN officials resigning in the 90s, the late 90s, you know, Hans von Spanek and David Holliday, well, for the sanctions. Because even though, yes, Saddam Hussein was a brutal dictator, but even the most brutal dictatorship still provides essential services to its population. They still have civil servants trying to do their best to provide health care and sanitation, all the basic stuff that a government does. And if you slash the government's revenue, then you slash the government's ability to import essential things. You have food, medicine, but also spare parts for things like the sewage system and electricity grid and all that stuff. So there's no such thing as reducing a government's revenue deliberately through sanction and not hurting the general population. Even if the government is, like in the case of Saddam Hussein, a, a dictator, a brutal one, all that, but still when you hurt a government's ability to buy essential products. And if you think about it, the worse the government is, 
the more that's going to be the case. I mean, the more likely the government's just going to transfer as much pain as it can get away with to population and spare the privileged sectors it looks after. So in the case of Venezuela, you know, Mark Weisbrock and Jeffrey Sox estimated that by the end of 2018 alone, just between 2017 and 2018, when Trump really ramped up the financial sanctions, by then they had already been linked to like 40,000 deaths. Now you can debate whether that's high or lower, but that's only till the end of 2018. Now, in the beginning of 2019, they've constantly increased the severity and intensity of the sanctions, trying to make it illegal for Venezuela to sell its oil and for anyone to buy it from them. <laughs> you know, they kept ramping it up. So that is killing thousands of people. If there were an opposition movement in countries like Canada and the United States and Europe, demand wouldn't just be, got to stop this. Demand would actually be, hey, we got to prosecute the people involved with this. This is killing people. This is a crime. This, you know, People should be facing legal consequences for this. But it's hard enough just to get to the point where you can just tell them, stop. Absolutely. And, you know, so many premises that go on question that the United States has the right to do this, to exert pressure, right. to harm the civilian population of a country and the the idea is meant to be, well, if we starve them and make them suffer enough, then they'll change their government. And that's what right. we, we want them to have a different government. I mean, it's just assumption on assumption on assumption and all of them are outrageous. Well, I wanted to ask you about Iran. You can link them together. It's also a case where People are suffering, but right. if you read U.S. media, it's all for a point, and it's just mm -hmm. hard to see what that point could be. In the case of Iran, it's a little different. They're not trying to claim that Iran needs to democratize. Uh, they're saying that Iran has a so-called uh, nuclear program that threatens the region, threatens the United States. So it's more similar to the line against Saddam Hussein. Uh, you know, but there is no nuclear weapons program. I mean, there is a nuclear energy program, uh, but... There's a country in the region that refuses to put its uh, nuclear weapons under uh, uh, international control, and that's Israel, of course. But they, you know they came and talk about that because that's an ally, so they can do what they want. They, you know, Saudi Arabia. You know, we're Canada as well is just sending arms to Saudi Arabia, United States, and, and 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 all sorts of military support and everything for them to commit horrific crimes in Yemen. I mean, it's, the threat to the region is, is really the the U.S. and its allies. But Iran is singled out, it's, as everyone knows. It's been a long time regarded as by the United States as an enemy. And Iran also applied for the same IMF loan that Maduro recently applied for. And they took a bit longer, but it looks like it's finally been rejected because of the U.S. pressure. You know, the IMF, like I said, is basically run by the U.S., especially when it comes to making loans to uh, low- and middle-income countries. And the Europeans push back very softly, you know, when they do push back. So that's an important point. You know, the, the complicity of countries like Canada and the EU, you know, it's, it's basically a, a group of, you know, roughly 50 countries at the United States. It's, it's a minority of countries in the world, but they tend to be rich and powerful, and they, they tend to be the ones that play along with the United States and its aggression abroad. I was noticing that it seemed like a big deal that other countries were under threat of sanction from the United States still engaging in trade or still making, you know, mm -hmm. having communication with Iran, even though the United States took its exceptionalist position to say that they right. weren't allowed to do that. But it's not enough and doesn't amount to standing up to the U.S.'s bludgeoning. Right. Well, let me just ask you for final thoughts on 
coverage in particular that we are likely to see going forward. I mean, this narco state Venezuela thing seems to be just getting started. Who knows what media are going to do with Mm -hmm. that? What should we be keeping in mind as we look at coverage of U.S. sanctions? It's always about what they say and about what they don't say. It's important for us to go back that the whole premise that I mentioned that people have, have, have not pushed back on, even well-intentioned people, in my opinion, have kind of forgotten sometimes. It might maybe even me, I've, I've forgotten sometimes to push back on the fact that Venezuela has a democratically elected government. You know, in 2018, one of the big complaints for saying that Maduro's government wasn't legitimately elected was saying that basically two of his top rivals were disqualified. Okay, now they were involved in multiple coup attempts, and they would never have been allowed to participate and certainly have been in jail in in their country. But it's worth remembering, right now in Ecuador, for instance, Rafael Correa has been sentenced to jail for 25 years, not allowed to run for any public office in Ecuador. But it's a U.S. ally, so nobody's going to cite that as an example and say, hey, they're not a democracy. Lula da Silva in Brazil was in jail when Bolsonaro won his election. And these are countries, Brazil and Ecuador, and they're not facing an external threat like Venezuela is. So it's very important to keep in mind that the kind of so-called abuses that Venezuela is accused of are just routine stuff in countries that are allied with the United States. I mean, an even more striking example is Bolivia, where you have an outright dictatorship right now because the democratically elected president, Evo Morales, was overthrown in a coup based on a bogus electoral allegation made by a compliant OAS bureaucracy that's funded mainly by the U.S. So, you know, all these attacks on Venezuela, on Iran, they're, they're all based on the premise that what the U.S. allies do is is okay. You know, they can, they can do all sorts of things and nobody reports them in a way that says, hey, that's not right, that's not democratic, or that's actually a war crime or whatever. But if Venezuela or Iran do anything... It just gets amplified all over the place, and, and, and this idea is reinforced in people's heads that these are evil governments. I mean, we can critique the way the United States brings them down, but that it's basically they're on the right side by, by being against them. We've been speaking with writer Joe Emmersberger. You can find his piece, Media Struggle to Defend Washington's Cruelty Toward Venezuela and Iran as Coronavirus Spreads on FAIR.org. Joe Emmersberger, thank you so much for joining us today on Counterspin. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for our Action Alert Network, to subscribe to our print and online publication extra, and to show support for the group if you're so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.